0: A nail man.
1: Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England, and I actually think I've got a rather lengthy show for you this time. There's only one film I actually saw at the cinema this week, but I've got a lot of other stuff to get to. Cinematically, we have the Polish film Sweat. But also out at the cinema this week is the brilliant low key British indie film Supernova, which I have already seen at the Film Bath Festival. And I like it so much and want to make absolutely sure you know about it. So I have actually clipped out the review I recorded of Supernova from my Film Bath Festival special episode and I'm going to replay it for you today.
0: So, cinematically, we have reviews of Sweat and Supernova. Streaming at
1: home, we have the broad Hollywood satire, The Comeback Trail, which was released via Sky Cinema. We also have the streaming film, Where'd You Go Bernadette? Richard Linklater's last film, which has relatively quickly ended up on Sky Cinema, so I watched that one for free. And also available streaming, and I actually found it very cheap at basically half price, is the American indie horror film The Stylist. And on Netflix, we have two very different films. We have The Broad cg animated film dog gone trouble and the lushly historical lgbtq film from mexico dance of the 41 so a lot of films to get to i've got a feeling this is going to be getting back to my rather lengthy shows so with reviews of sweat supernova The Comeback Trail, Where'd You Go Bernadette, The Stylist, Dog Gone Trouble, and The Dance of the 41, let's get on with today's reviews.
0: Big Screen
1: Sweat is a Polish film which is weirdly being directed by the Swedish director Magnus von Horn. So we have a Swedish director with a German name directing a film in Polish. Albeit he is a Swedish director who went to university in Poland and studied at the Cinematic Institute in Wodz. So, odd. But yes, this is a Polish film directed by a Swede which stars Magdalena Klesnik. As a fitness influencer who has 600,000 followers on Instagram, or thereabouts, and is one of the rapidly rising stars of the Polish fitness scene. This is roughly three days in her life, where she is dealing with the aftermath of a somewhat public breakdown, which she posted online, and that has got her some of the wrong kinds of publicity. But she is also trying to get onto the most successful Polish morning news programme. I mean, basically appearing alongside Philip Schofield on This Morning, only in Polish. But she's desperately trying to do that. And she's also trying to figure out what to do about the stalker who has started following her and paying too much attention to her. So how can this fit, young, attractive Instagram influencer cope with these problems in her life? And what is it like to live your entire life online? And that is a fascinating question which gets answered in a quite interesting way in Sweat. I did actually really like this film. I've said many times on this podcast that one of the things that I really gravitate towards, one of the things that really intrigues me, is the kind of film where everything is up for debate the truth of what is happening, the truth about what people feel about what is happening, and an audience member trying to figure out for themselves through context, through juxtaposition, what is the truth of the situation? Is there any truth to the situation? That really does fascinate me, and we get that in spades, in sweat, This is a situation where this young woman, this young fitness enthusiast basically lives her entire life online. Everything is posted, everything is commented about, there is something for her followers, her fans, every five minutes or so it seems. And what happens to you when you live your entire life online? I was actually reminded about a quote I heard about Janis Joplin, somebody who knew her trying to explain how she died of that overdose. And I can't remember who it was, but this friend of Janis Joplin said, for her, the high of performance was so high, it was such an amazing rush to be on stage and performing, that then when you go back, to your dressing room, and it's not there anymore. What do you fill that with? You might well fill that with heroin, and that's what Janis Joplin, what one of her major issues was. And I was kind of reminded of that, and how different modern fame is to fame back in the seventies when Janis Joplin died. Because here, Magdalena Kolesnik is basically living her entire life online. I mean, yes, she has the high of the performance, the performative aspect of being this fitness influencer, making these posts. But then five minutes later, she's doing it again. So it's it's this constant rush, this constant high, this constant grind to get that high and maintain that high. It's very noticeable that she constantly needs to be the centre of attention. One of the things she does over these three days is she goes to her mother's flat for her mother's birthday and it's a party with her cousins and her uncles and her grandmother and her mother's new boyfriend and she basically tries to make the entire party for her mother about her it's noticeable that Magdalena Kolesnik needs to be the center of attention constantly even when she's at her mother's birthday party so, I mean, that constant need for affirmation, that need for approval, that need for attention is something that is there. But, equally, there could well be an aspect of Magdalena Kleznik, which is cracking, is breaking. I mean, before the film has even started, she's posted this very emotional post where she's sort of like crying in a darkened room saying, I feel so alone, I wish I had a boyfriend. And she posted that online and you know, people are commenting about it. But the way this comes up is she is, you know, a day or two later looking at you know, the gossip sites and there's a link to the video. She plays the video and just dispassionately looks at it. I mean, as her from a couple of days in the past is seemingly having a complete breakdown, you know, crying, sobbing, very depressed, all that kind of stuff. Modern day Magdalena Kolesznik is just dispassionately looking at this, watching this. And it's a really interesting thing because is this a situation where I need to dispassionately watch this because otherwise I will break down again? I need to assess what is out there, what people might think of it. Or is this a situation where the performance of me breaking down a couple of days ago? I need to analyse it, what it means to my brand, how I can spin this for publicity. I think one of the major things of this film, or at least one of the things that I found in this film, is the idea that any publicity is good publicity. I am not 100% sure if that quote-unquote breakdown from a few days before the film starts was a deliberate ploy or not. I am not sure whether this was manufactured in order to get you know, attention or notoriety or whether it was a genuine breakdown. Either one is likely and either one says really fascinating things about the modern price of fame, the modern status of, no pun intended, the modern status of celebrity culture. Is this one of those things where any publicity is good publicity? I mean, if I do something so big, so dramatic, it will get attention and maybe I will get more followers. Was it a calculated thing to deliberately put that out there? Or this mildly unfortunate thing has happened and I'm going to spin this as best I can. You could read it either way and either one is valid and either one is interesting. And I like the fact that, to some degree, this modern kind of internet celebrity, to some degree, is a blank slate for people to reflect back upon themselves. I mean, as uh, Magdalena Klesznik is just walking through a shopping mall one day, she gets stopped by somebody who she apparently used to go to school with. And the way that Magdalena Klesznik reacts to this woman, it's clear that she does not remember this woman she has no idea who this person really is but you know she's being polite she's listening to this person and then this virtual stranger just unloads all her emotional magic or her tragic emotional baggage onto this person who she you know knew a decade ago and is now kind of famous on instagram i mean she has become a blank slate a sounding board for this person to reflect upon her own life and Magdalena Klesznik just has to sit there and take it and in return says some very personal stuff which again might or
0: might not be a calculated public PR statement so how Magdalena Klesznik
1: is feeling how she's reacting to the world is always in question and I find it really, really interesting that during this very, very tragic story, which is just blurted out to Magdalena Klesznik by this virtual stranger, it's the stranger who says what I think is the thesis of the entire film. The stranger says, what's the point if it can't be shared online? Or, yeah, I'm paraphrasing, but that's, that's basically what she says. What's the point if it can't be shared? And that's kind of how Magdalena Kolesnik lives her life. And is she embracing this or is she being broken by this? We're never quite sure. And we're never quite sure how calculated this whole thing has been. I mean, was this, you know, quote unquote breakdown just a ploy to maybe get her on this national TV show? Or was it a genuine breakdown, which she then had to rapidly spin into something positive and yeah we don't know and i think it's a fascinating way of going
0: about it and it's particularly interesting when you consider this you know breakdown which she posted when
1: basically all the relationships which she has in this film are somewhat transactional in nature i mean even with her own mother it's a somewhat transactional relationship you know Look at what a success I am! Look at how you know, this big TV I can give you, even though it's too big for the room. You know, I have done something. I have made something. Look, look at me! And you know, the her business manager who gets her all his sponsorships, gets her all his free junk, which she can then promote on her Instagram page. The co-worker who she seemingly kind of mildly flirts with and then there's some really weird stuff which happens in that relationship towards the end all of it seems to be of a somewhat transactional nature and i did notice something and it's entirely possible that this is one of those things i'm reading way way too much into
0: but throughout the course of the film Magdalena Kolesnik has two of her fingernails
1: painted a different colour than the rest of her hand.
0: And it's never mentioned, it's never really talked about, but one of the things which is signalled
1: sometimes by women having two, one or two fingernails painted a different colour than the rest of their hands, it's, it used to be called
0: femme flagging. I am a feminine lesbian, if you want to approach me, go ahead.
1: That could maybe be what's going on. I mean, if it is, that is the only minuscule, very, very subtle thing that hints that in any way whatsoever. But if that is truth that she is actually gay, then that does make a lot of sense of the transactional nature of some of her relationships. But... Yeah, that's one thing that it could be. I mean, there's also women who paint their fingernails in support of survivors of domestic abuse and sexual abuse. So it could be that as well. But either way, I thought that was a weird, interesting little detail. But yeah, I think there's some very interesting stuff going on in this film. I mean, I do find it interesting that this is a Polish film directed by a Swede. And a lot of the soundtrack is Roxette, which I thought was rather interesting. You know, the Swedish band Roxette, and it occurred to me that I was in the sweet spot to get that Roxette reference. I mean, half of the rest of the people in this very, very small screen over in the World's Shed Cinema, half of them were probably too old to recognise Roxette, and the other half were too young to recognise Roxette. I was in the sweet spot for that particular reference. And yeah, I do think that Magnus Horn directed this film rather interestingly. His first film from 2016, The Hereafter, was a kind of an interesting film about a 17-year-old boy who returns to the same small rural farming community after a two-year sentence for murder of his girlfriend, and nobody wants him back. It it was a kind of an, an interesting film, but I think it was a little bit too distant, too detached for its own good. Yes, I think a somewhat observational approach to that subject matter was good, but I think Magnus Van Horn possibly did that a little bit too much in The Hereafter. And here, in Sweat, I think, if anything, he has the opposite problem. Even though, personally speaking, I think it's very, very effective, he uses extreme close-up i mean gigantically extreme close-up to the extent that there are certain shots where there's close-ups of magdalena kalashnik's face as she's working out where it's so close that there's actually motion blur as she's moving so yeah i'm not sure i've ever seen that close a close-up before in a cinematic film But it is effective, including some of the final scenes of the film, which I think are immensely powerful and immensely haunting, and immensely open to interpretation, because I'm really not sure, even by the end of the film, what the true status of Magdalena Klesznik is. I think it's entirely up for debate, and in a really intriguing, really fascinating way. This is a film about living performatively. A film about presenting your life to the public, but is it your life or is it a life that has been constructed? What is the difference between what you actually feel, what you actually are, and what you present to your 600,000 Instagram followers? What is the difference? Is there a difference anymore? I think it's really powerful somewhat chilling and somewhat disturbing i think it's a brilliant film about modern day internet celebrity i think the perils and the pressures of the modern internet social media age is brought into focus by this film i mean i think it's right up there with other similar social media films like eighth grade and ingrid goes west and even the other polish film from last year on Netflix the hater i think also has quite a few similarities with it but either way i think this is a fascinating thought provoking arguably chilling film which is excellently performed by magdalena kolasnick she is excellent in this and i do think it's a very very good film so if you can still find it at the cinema it is been given a very very small release but it is also Available through Curzon Home Cinema. However, you find it, I do strongly recommend Sweat from Poland. And for me, it is a yay. So that was the one cinematic trip I made this week. And here is the review I clipped out of my Film Bath Festival special, reviewing the other film out at the cinema this week, which I urge you to check out.
0: Here is my review of. Supernova. Archive Start Next up is the tiny
1: British independent film, Supernova, which is written and directed by Harry McQueen, who doesn't have much of a CV. He's worked sporadically as an actor, including one episode of EastEnders, and has written and directed, and indeed starred in, one film in the past hinterland from 2014 which i've never seen didn't get very widely distributed it seems to be a two handed film and that is largely what supernova is as well it's largely a two-handed film with married couple colin firth and stanley tucci going on a road trip together in their beaten up old camper van Colin Firth is a famous concert pianist, and Stanley Tucci is a respected novelist. But the reason for this road trip is rather sad and tragic. Ostensibly, they are travelling to where Colin Firth grew up in the Lake District for the sake of one final... Farewell concert performance from this famous pianist, Colin Firth, and along the way, going to meet up with Colin Firth's sister, Pippa Hayward, and her family. But the real reason for this road trip is one final holiday together because Stanley Tucci has been diagnosed with dementia and it is rapidly getting worse. So, while Stanley Tucci is at least partially still with it, they're going on this trip together as one final hurrah for their relationship. And dealing with the fact that Stanley Tucci is rapidly going to be losing his memory, losing his mind, and losing his ability to work, which is something he is very. Passionate about so this aging married couple go on one final road trip together dealing with the fact that one of them is soon not going to be there whether mentally or possibly even physically how close is stanley tucci to death it
0: can never be underestimated so One final road trip for this married couple. So I've been seeing trailers for this for a very very long time.
1: I believe this was scheduled to get some kind of release in the autumn because I started seeing trailers for this over in the watershed back in spring you know before the world shut down so Yeah, it's been in the pipelines for a very, very long time, and as soon as I saw it, I thought, ooh, Colin Firth as Stanley Tucci is a married couple, and Stanley Tucci is losing his mind? That looks kind of interesting, and kind of tragic. I'm in. So when I saw this on the schedule for the film bar festival, I thought, right, that's one of my five tickets taken care of, and I went along to see it, and... This is just as beautiful, as devastating, as well-acted as I expected it to be. This is an intimate, tragic view of a long-standing, loving relationship which, through no fault of either party, is gradually coming to an end. It becomes increasingly obvious throughout the course of the film Just how far gone Stanley Tucci is. Even the simplest things are starting to become really, really hard for him. And Colin Firth is just going to have to deal with it. And, you know, being very British and very stiff upper lip, he's trying his best to deal with it. But what he sees as making the best of it looks to an outsider, i.e., the audience, as total total denial he is just not willing to deal with what is happening at all and it's it's kind of hard to watch in certain places but equally moving and there is humor along the way there is engagement along the way these are two people who deeply care for each other
0: have been together for a very long time and this is just another thing they're going to have to deal with. And
1: their families are going to have to deal with. I mean, they end up in this lovely little cottage in the Lake District, which is owned by Colin Firth's sister, Pippa Hayward, and her husband, and their adorable, cute daughter. And they are, are having to deal with
0: the imminent demise of their beloved brother-in-law slash uncle. And their struggling to deal with this as well and yeah
1: it's very moving and very poetic and kind of tragic and the structure of this film the way that just how ill Stanley Tucci is gradually revealed is very nicely done I mean at the beginning of the film it's you know a simple thing like he doesn't know where his glasses are and they're on his forehead and
0: you know that's something that anybody might do. You have a situation where Colin Firth is
1: cutting onions and he starts crying. I think, oh these damn onions and he goes off to the tiny little bathroom in this camper van. And you know, I you kind of get the impression that yes, he's chopping onions because he's cooking dinner, but he chose to cook a dinner which involved onions because he was on the verge of crying anyway. Uh, and they do this little thing where they record tapes on a dictaphone. And very archaic technology. Can you even still get dictaphones? You know, a literal dictaphone with a tape rather than just a digital voice recorder. But anyway, they're making these little tapes, which seems to me to be the kind of thing that you might well do to a dementia patient you know have these moments where you are forcing yourself to remember things forcing yourself to say things and you know seeing how far the memory loss the memory lapses have gone i'm sure that's something that actual dementia patients are asked to do but equally it's really really handy for the sake of exposition so it's uh, it's a nice way of, of doing that so the structure of this film and the gradual revelation of just how bad it is for Stanley Tucci, I mean, there's a bit towards the end of the film where Colin Firth opens, for the first time in a while, one of Stanley Tucci's notebooks, which he writes down ideas for his next novel in. And as he flips the pages, it's it's just such a beautiful and poetic moment of seeing what is happening to Stanley Tucci and what is indeed happening to Colin Firth as he's realising just what is happening to Stanley Tucci. And, yeah, it's it's heartbreaking, but it's also very, very beautiful and very well acted. I mean, there's a large chunk towards the end of this film which would make an awesome two-handed one-act play. I mean, they end up in a a house which they've rented for the weekend so Colin Firth can prepare for this final farewell concert and for the first time they at least in this film and probably the first time ever they sit down and have a long long conversation about exactly what is happening to Stanley Tucci and exactly how Colin Firth feels about it and it's heartbreaking it's brilliant it's breathtaking it's tragic but it's also beautiful and poetic i mean it's really really well done all around this is a quiet intimate heartbreaking little film and i think it's excellent it is due out in the new year i mean time of recording it's due out in the new year and i thoroughly recommend it i think supernova when you have the chance to see it Is thoroughly recommended, and for me, it was a yay.
0: Archive finish.
1: So, yeah, I think Supernova is an absolutely outstanding film. I strongly recommend it. In my Oscar preview show, I gave it a Best Picture nomination for me, as well as a Best Supporting Actor nomination for Stanley Tucci, and a Best Original Screenplay adaptation for the writer-director Harry McQueen. So, in my book, Supernova should have got three Oscar nominations, and if that doesn't tell you how good a film I think it is, then nothing will. But it is out cinematically now, and I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it.
0: Home Movies
1: The first home movie, so to speak, that I wanted to review in this episode Is another film which has been directly released onto Sky Cinema,
0: so it was broadcast directly into my Skybox. This one is a broad American
1: satire
0: quote-unquote comedy called The Comeback Trail, which is actually a remake
1: of a very very cheap almost grindhouse film from
0: 1982 also called the comeback trail this modern version is written and
1: directed by a guy called george Gallo, who doesn't have a hugely impressive cv although he did work on the bad boys franchise which i suppose is the biggest thing he's not actually a credited writer or producer on any of those He's did a film called Middleman about the birth of internet porn and he also did a biopic of the people who founded the modern bodybuilding industry. So, yeah, he's got an odd career and this is, in some ways, an odd film and it's certainly an odd idea to remake this very obscure, very cheap movie from 1982. In this film, we are in the 1970s where low-budget film producer Robert De Niro is reeling from the fact that his latest exploitation, picture killer nuns, has been an absolute financial disaster because, not unsurprisingly, it has been protested by the Catholic Church. But unfortunately, The person who puts in most of the money to this last film, Killer Nuns, was local mobster Morgan Freeman, who now wants to make an example of Robert De Niro. Either give me $350,000, which Robert De Niro absolutely does not have, or I will end up killing you. So suddenly, Robert De Niro and his business partner slash nephew, Zach Braff, Have to get a lot of money very quickly. When they are on set where an accident takes the life of a famous action movie star, they realise that the insurance payout for this death was huge. And if they can somehow work it out, or if Robert De Niro can somehow work it out, because Zach Braff is not part of this scheme. If Robert De Niro can work out a way to get a major star dead on set, the insurance money will help pay off Morgan Freeman. So they dust off an old Western script, which has been gathering dust on the shelf at their production company for years, and get in contact with, long past this sell-by date, aging and actually kind of suicidal old Western star Tommy Lee Jones. So, if Robert De Niro and Zach Braff can work out such a way that Tommy Lee Jones dies on set, they get the insurance money and they can pay off mobster Morgan Freeman. And maybe have a little bit of money left over in order to make the film they really want to make, but they just don't have the budget for at the moment. So it's basically a very morbid version of the producers and it has a similar kind of approach. I mean, these are the wrong producers for this film, casting the wrong leading actor, hiring the wrong director. This is 1970 Hollywood and shock horror, they hire a woman to direct this western picture, Kate Katzman. And despite themselves, they actually come out with a decent enough film because no matter what they try and do, Tommy Lee Jones just doesn't die. It's kind of like a Wiley Coyote kind of thing where they're setting up these scenarios, these ways in which Tommy Lee Jones could accidentally, quote unquote, die, and he keeps on avoiding it. And. As a byproduct of trying to kill Tommy Lee Jones, they're actually getting some really awesome footage to use in this Western film. And I think that one of the things that George Gallo, as writer director, is trying to do here is poke fun at modern Hollywood. I mean, this is the guy who. some degree is responsible for the bad boys franchise and he's having a pop at the Hollywood system as it stands but anyway I mean there's certain bits in this that are very much having a go at people like Paul Greengrass and the shaky cam idea there's somebody who I think is supposed to be a parody of Werner Herzog the fact that a black director comes in and is immediately dismissed the fact that a woman director comes in and is immediately dismissed until Tommy Lee Jones says, you know, I want her. And hey, they don't want this film to work anyway. So think, like, alright, well, I guess our director's a woman now. So yeah, I mean, the closed nature of Hollywood in this period, I mean, not being accessible to women, not being accessible to people of colour, the same kinds of people making the same kinds of films. That's what this film is to some degree about. And the film itself, the film they're actually making, sounds like a film that would absolutely get greenlit in 2021. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones plays this ageing cowboy who accidentally discovers that he is directly descended from Native American chiefs and then starts to fight for the Indians against the cavalry. I mean, it's very, very much Dances with Wolves with a bit of action thrown in. I mean, this is exactly the kind of film that would be made in 2021. And yet, in 1970, when this film is set, it's a joke that this kind of film would be made. And I think this is kind of the point of the film. I mean, showing the direction that Hollywood has gone and maybe what has been lost along the way, at least according to writer-director George Gallo. There are these references. Some of them, it has to be said, are really, really stupid. Whenever Morgan Freeman is on the phone to Robert De Niro saying, right, I'm going to kill you, and then he puts in a movie reference. I mean, I'm going to kill you like that guy that Orson Welles killed in Touch of Evil. I mean, that kind of thing. And every single time Morgan Freeman says, I'm going to kill you in X way, he connects it to a movie reference which I think is supposed to be clever, but more than anything comes across as weird and annoying.
0: There's a very specific movie reference. The film production company that
1: Robert De Niro owns is called Miracle Pictures, and the tagline of this little production company is if it's good, it's a miracle. Now that is a very old, hollywood joke which i've heard many many times over the years apparently originally came from the 1920s movie hells are Poppin. but yeah that ironic subtitle to the movie picture i mean that is a very very specific movie reference there's lots of subtle or reasonably subtle references to the searchers in this film and stuff about the background of the Searchers and the production of the Searchers. So there is a reverence to old-school Hollywood here. But at the same time, there's some really, really stupid moments. Like,
0: the way that dailies are treated in this film is stupid, quite frankly.
1: Dailies are, or certainly used to be, you know, very quickly, let's... Process this film, and at the end of the day, this is what we we shot today, or this is what we shot yesterday, and we show them in the morning. So very rough, hardly edited at all. Let's just see what we've got. Is is there anything we need to change? Is what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? But very very rough cuts. And at a certain point, these dailies get shown, and they're perfectly edited. They've got score to them. Which they absolutely did not have time to do, it looks like a movie. And that is just not the way that dailies work, particularly at this kind of low budget 1970s exploitation level. So either they have been making this film for a very, very long time, which absolutely has not been part of the plot, and if it has, it's been very inelegantly presented as part of the film or these people just don't know how dailies work and the time scale is just really really weird i mean robert de niro goes into this film thinking all right i'm going to have a day or two's filming tommy lee jones is going to end up dead i'm going to cash in the insurance that's it he's only planned for a couple of days filming and yet i mean because tommy Lee jones survives it goes on and on and on but even then The amount of time that they seem to have been making this film just does not compute with what's going on. So yeah, the time scales, the intentions of this film are just way off. It's got so many stupid, dumb elements to it. And yes, it's got some reverence for old school Hollywood, but really, that's not enough. There could be, and to a certain degree there is, some fun in a film like The Comeback Trail. But really it has not been executed well enough, it has not been polished well enough to make it a good film. It's just not very good. I was mildly entertained through some of it, so it's not a complete wash, but for me The Comeback Trail, currently available on Sky Cinema, is a very low meh. Also released on Sky Cinema this week was Richard Linklater's last film, Where'd You Go Bernadette? This was released streaming earlier in the year, but I didn't bother with it, I mean I had other priorities that took my attention, but since it ended up on Sky Cinema within a couple of months I thought okay I may as well watch it since I don't have to put any effort into it. And I am a huge, huge fan of Richard Linklater. Before Midnight was my film of the year in 2014 or 15, I think it was. The Before Trilogy as a whole I think is outstanding. Boyhood I think is outstanding. Dazed and Confused I think is outstanding. Bernie, which nobody really talks about, is an excellent film from Richard Linklater. I mean, very much off to the side in... Richard Linklater's more light-hearted fare, even though it is about a murderer. But yeah, Bernie is an excellent Richard Linklater film, so I am a huge, huge fan of Richard Linklater, and I'm a fan of Kate Blanchett, who stars in this film. As a bohemian woman living in Seattle with her tech genius billionaire husband, Crud up, and their teenage daughter Emma Nelson. Kate Blanchett lives in this huge ramshackle house, which she is quote unquote renovating, but she's not actually doing very much. Bitching about the Type A personality soccer moms who are around her, particularly her next door neighbor Kristen Wiig. She doesn't want to be part of society at all and through the course of the film we realized that she was once a very well-regarded architect but 20 odd years ago partly in order to take care of her daughter and partly just to get away from the publicity she stopped being an architect altogether and since then has been isolating herself somewhat in this bohemian style in this ramshackle
0: mansion in Seattle and one day through a series of misadventures she decides
1: that she just wants to get away from it all and she decides to go as far as this is humanly possible to go she decides to head to Antarctica and her husband Billy Crudup and her daughter Emma Nelson have to work out where she is and follow her and try and figure out why this
0: artistic spirit has been trapped in this pigeonhole for far too long.
1: This is based on what is apparently a very successful novel by Maria Semple, which, as I understand it, is an epistolary novel. It is a novel entirely made up of letters, or in the modern day, emails. But knowing that fact, you can definitely see the structures behind this film. There are so many sequences of Kate Blanchett dictating emails to a personal assistant. And this is a personal assistant she hasn't actually hired herself. This is a remote personal assistant somewhere in Delhi and she is dictating using voice recognition software these emails which will then allow this personal assistant all the way off in Delhi to do everything
0: for her so she doesn't have to do anything. But the frustrations particularly the
1: expectations of conformity that are coming from her next-door neighbour Kristin Wigg, start grinding on her, and the artistic spirit must be set free, and in order to pursue her artistic dreams, she heads off to Antarctica. And yeah, it, it, yeah. I'm sure it's supposed to be this way, and I'm not sure how it comes across in the novel, the original novel, but In this film, this character that Kate Blanchett is playing, Bernadette, comes across as a total flake. Someone who is so consumed with art and the way things should be and her ideas, her ideals, what she was presenting to the world when she was an architect 20 years ago. You know, the paths along the way which led her to stop being an architect and it's actually kind of a tragic story you know the artistry that she was trying for and how it was just ignored and overlooked and ultimately destroyed and she has since shut herself away and this kind of low level mental illness i think is basically what this is a portrait of this is not somebody who is schizophrenic or manic depressive or Psychotic or anything like that. She is the mundane, the ordinary level of mentally ill, arguably, that she just doesn't fit in. She is ostentatiously removing herself from society. She is ostentatiously being bohemian and not conforming to the expectations of the soccer moms who live around her. And it actually gets a bit grinding. I mean, being so outrageous, being so quirky, it actually gets a bit grating, it gets a bit difficult to support. And you know, finding you, know, I need creative expression, and in order to do that, I'm going to abandon my teenage daughter who desperately needs me right now. And I I just found it so hard to support and like this character i mean it is not essential to have a quote-unquote likable protagonist it certainly helps and there is a way to do this misanthropic kind of character well and i don't think richard linklater did i think the structure of the film adapting this epistolary novel and the ways you can clearly see oh that was clearly a letter in the original novel that was clearly an email in the original novel that was clearly a magazine article in the original novel you can see the structure poking through and it's rather inexpertly done i think there are certain novels which maybe shouldn't be adapted to the film they are so perfectly encapsulated in the form they are in that maybe you shouldn't have tried to adapt it And I don't know for sure, but this certainly feels like it should have stayed as an epistolary novel. It feels like that was the perfect format for this story to be told. And when you actually see it, and when you actually see the physicality of these communications, these letters, these emails, these articles presented to us in a physical space on screen, it just doesn't quite work. And I don't quite appreciates what Kate Blanchett was doing who is a great actress is one of our greatest actresses at the moment I just don't think this is a particularly good film I mean yes what she is asked to do she does it very well I really like the bitchy back and forth between Kate Blanchett and the type a personality soccer mom next door Kristen Wiig and eventually there's a scene where they you know, come to some kind of accommodation and yeah, the the spiky relationship they have is, is kind of interesting. So, yeah, there's bits here and there which are entertaining, which are funny, which are thought-provoking. But overall, this is something which, to the best of my knowledge, was perfectly satisfactory in its original form, and it shouldn't have been crammed into this new form because... It didn't quite work, and Where would You Go Bernadette as a film doesn't quite work. It is available through streaming and through Sky Cinema, and for me, it is, again, a low meh.
0: And finally, the streaming film I watched on my tablet this week
1: was the horror film The Stylist. Which I first became interested in because it co-stars Bria Grant, who I have already heaped a lot of praise on for the film she wrote and co-starred in Lucky, which I think is excellent. And she also directed and wrote the pretty decent horror comedy 12-hour shift. And when I saw that she was in this, I had a look at it and thought, oh, that looks like an interesting premise. And I wanted to check it out, despite the fact that this is not really Bria Grant's project. It is the project of director Jill Gevargesian and star Najara Townsend.
0: And I, I think the career of Jill Gevargesian is actually rather interesting and
1: a feel good story about the way that modern media works. According to her bio, Jill Givargesian to this day works as a hairdresser
0: in Kansas City, Missouri. She has always been interested in film and started running
1: a monthly horror movie night in Kansas City, which has apparently been going since 2012, although probably (laughs) had a break due to the pandemic, but Since 2012, she's been running this horror movie night in Kansas City and eventually started making short films. And in 2016, her short film, The Stylist, starring Najara Townsend, got into several high-profile film festivals. And Najera Townsend actually won Best Actress in a Short Film at Fantastic Fest in 2016 which is a pretty big deal, especially for a short film which was shot at a small hairdresser's in Kansas City, Missouri. Off the back of this, Jill Gavargesian managed to get a bigger profile, managed to get some backing to expand this short, The Stylist, into a feature film and along the way has also collaborated with the Soska sisters, which is a pretty big deal. They're the directors of such films as American Mary. So she has been getting a little bit of a higher profile as a horror director. And when she did expand this short, The Stylist, which you can actually see in its entirety, it's a 15 minute short and you can find it on Vimeo.com. And I do recommend you watch it because it gives you a good footing as to what the feature film is, which I'll be talking a little bit more about in a minute. But once Jill Gavagesian managed to get this feature film made, the feature film version also did the festival circuit, and again, got a lot of acclaim, a lot of awards. Najara Townsend won Best Actress at Frightfest for the feature film version. And it was also nominated for an award at the Sitges Horror Film Festival in Spain. I mean, two of the biggest genre festivals out there. So it's got some profile. And I love the fact that somebody like Jill Gavagesian can get films made, can get films noticed. And it's actually pretty good. Najara Townsend plays a hairstylist in Kansas City who works at a small hairdresser's but has a dark secret. Periodically, she kills her clients in order to take their hair, which she then wears as a wig,
0: having scalped these women in her barber's chair. One of her long-term clients played by Bria Grant,
1: insists that Najera Townsend does her hair for her upcoming wedding. And for reasons which eventually become apparent, or kind of become apparent, Najera Townsend does not do wedding hairdressing, but eventually, at the insistence of Bria Grant, she does agree to do her hair for Bria Grant's wedding, And Najera Townsend becomes more and more obsessed and more and more involved with the life and the relationship of Bria Grant and tries to tamp down her murderous urges. But can she manage to do it when there is the possibility, however slight, of genuine friendship, genuine human connection with this long-term client Bria Grant? And I do think it is important to tell you about the short film, The Stylist, which you can see on Vimeo, because this is not one of those situations where
0: the short film was extended or remade into the feature film. To some degree, the feature film, The Stylist, is a sequel. To the short film, The Stylist. The dress that Najera
1: Townsend wears in the short does make a return appearance in the feature film, The Stylist, in a, a critical scene. And there is a line of dialogue in the feature film, The Stylist, which is a direct reference, a direct continuation of something which happened in the short. So the short the Stardust is basically the prologue
0: for the feature film. It's not a perfect comparison because there is a physical
1: element of Najara Townsend in the short, which is not continued on into the feature. And it's a different hairdressers in a different house, but you know, you can say,
0: All right, in the X number of years between, we've moved. So it's basically a 15 minute
1: prologue to this feature film which is very very good i mean it does deal with a psychopathic killer kind of thing it is clear that najara townsend fetishizes hair in both senses of that word she gets a thrill from it, and it is is also an object of veneration, these scalps which she wears on her head and changes herself. It's kind of like that philosophy of Ed Gein, the serial killer Ed Gein, who directly inspired Buffalo Bill in The Silence of the Lambs. I am wearing somebody else's skin to change myself. It is an element of transformation. It is an element of breaking through into a new life, being the person you want to be rather than the person you are. And it's also, I think, a film about female body image and the expectations of femininity. I think it's relevant that it's not 100% clear, but Bria Grant either works in advertising or in publishing. And either way, when we see her at work, she is judging the appearances of women who have been photographed you're saying all right we need to airbrush that we need to change that etc etc i mean putting this impossible idealized version of femininity out there which people like najera townsend and indeed the majority of women out there cannot possibly achieve so when you can't achieve this quote-unquote perfection What do you do? And when you are inclined that way, when you have mental issues already, sometimes these things get murderous, and that is kind of what's happened to Najara Townsend. And the struggles that she has—I mean, to some degree, she knows that what she is doing is wrong—and desperately tries to stop doing it, to stop killing these women and scalping them. And the question arises as I was watching this film. How easy is it to scalp somebody? I'm sure it's not as easy as it is portrayed in this film, but regardless, it's a pretty cool shot, pretty cool image, and they do not skimp on the squelching. But anyway, doing this thing of scalping women and wearing their hair, making yourself perfect, putting yourself in that position of, being the idealised version of femininity. That's just something which you cannot do on a regular basis. And when you have issues
0: of mental health already, you can break. And that's basically what Najera Townsend has done. The idea that this friendship
1: which has... Developed, or at least the friendship, as far as the Joe Townsend is concerned, there is now a friendship between her and Bria Grant, because you know Bria Grant impulsively says, "Oh, well, I haven't got anything to do tonight. Why don't you come round to my house? We'll have a girls' night in." I mean, I've been your client for years. Come round, we can hang out, and that's the scene in which the original dress is worn from the short,
0: but. As far as Najera Townsend is concerned, oh wow, I have a friend now. But to some degree,
1: from Bria Grant's point of view, Najera Townsend is still, you know, quote unquote, the help. And that grey area that people like hairdressers fit into, the blurring of lines between a friend and the help is. A really interesting thing to explore. How much of a genuine relationship is there? How much of a genuine friendship is there? I mean, yes, Bria Grant likes hanging out with Najo Townsend. To some degree, Najera Townsend, the hairdresser, is, is a kind of a confessional object. And throughout the course of the film, there are several women who share some very intimate, very personal secrets with their hairdresser. I mean, talk to people who are slightly removed from you, and you're not necessarily going to see her again. So you feel comfortable in sharing and perhaps oversharing your personal life. There is a, a an element of therapy almost here. Bartenders, taxi drivers, priests. You know, you can share things with these people which you don't necessarily share with your closest friends, or even with yourself, potentially. So there is always this this transactional kind of element to the relationship as far as Bria Grant is concerned. But Najera Townsend has latched onto this quote-unquote friendship wholeheartedly and is sinking herself into it, is desperately trying not to go on a murderous rampage and unfortunately not particularly succeeding well. I mean, there's a, a barista who appears throughout the course of the film and maybe is even flirting with Najera Townsend that you could certainly read it that way. And there is certainly a couple of moments where you think, oh, not only is Najera Townsend keen to be a friend to Bea Grant, she also possibly kind of fancies her as well. So yeah, I think
0: there's a, a lesbian background hum to this whole thing. But Najera Townsend is so isolated,
1: so shy, that even when the hand of at least friendship and maybe even flirting from this barista is extended, she doesn't recognise it, she doesn't respond to it. And seeing how that all plays out is ultimately kind of tragic, and in a lot of ways this is a tragic film. I spotted where this film was going, pretty early i really really hoped it wasn't going to end up that way but it did
0: and yeah it's it's a really powerful story not massively massively
1: original i mean in a lot of ways this is a remake of the absolutely filthy grindhouse exploitation film maniac So it it definitely has its influences, it wears its influences on its sleeve. But it's well executed. I think Ngera Townsend and Bria Grant are excellent. Jill Givoghizian as director is excellent and she also has a cameo in her own film as one of the victims of this murderous hairdresser. In fact, I think possibly the last victim we
0: see on screen, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, Jill Govergesian as writer and director is excellent. And yeah, I think this is a solid slasher movie with a feminist point, a mildly political point, and I
1: think it works. So for me, The Stylist, currently available through streaming,
0: is a rock-solid, pretty high meh. Netflix and chill. Dog
1: Gone Trouble is one of many, many animated films which has ended up on Netflix. This particular one is Canadian and was actually released cinematically in 2019 in certain countries around the world, particularly in Eastern Europe and Southeast Asia, where it was released under the much more generic title, Trouble. But now it has ended up with worldwide distribution on Netflix under the slightly better title of Dog Gone Trouble, least certainly more findable name of Dog Gone Trouble. As many of the films which were done by this company, 3QU animation, have ended up. I mean, Fearless was one of those. I reviewed that last year and didn't especially like it. And I believe 3QU might have now gone out of business. It was founded by one of the original producers of Shrek, and I think it might just not have been able to compete, even with Netflix hoovering up lots of animated content. But anyway, Doggone Trouble has ended up on Netflix, and it has a relatively unoriginal story of an incredibly pampered little mixed-breed terrier, Trouble, voiced by rapper Big Sean, who lives with his dotty old owner, voiced by Betty White, in a gigantic mansion. He has everything he could possibly want. He is groomed and bathed and scented daily. He has the dog whisperer Cesar Milan on call 24 7, voiced by the real Cesar Milan. He wants for absolutely nothing. But then, of course, Betty White dies and leaves all her money to her beloved pet dog. This is something that is not initially realised by the people who they think are getting the inheritance. Betty White's nephew and niece, voiced by Joel McHale, and Broadway star Marissa Jarrett-Winnaker. So by the time the nephew and niece realise they actually need to keep the dog around, he's already been kicked to the curb, and is wandering the streets with a variety of other animals, voiced by various people like Pamela Adlon, Damon Wayans Jr., Olivia Holt, And WWE superstar Seth Rollins, which is one of the reasons I made sure I watched this. It seems like very strange casting to have Seth Rollins in this voice cast. And there's another guest voice celebrity cameo, which I'll be talking about in a little bit as well. So this pampered dog has to try and make it work with this group of more streetwise dogs and the spunky aspiring singer and pizza delivery girl voiced by Lucy Hale, who ends up somewhat reluctantly
0: adopting young Trouble. So can Trouble, voiced by Big Sean, keep out of the reach of the tracker who has been set on him
1: by the putative inheritors? somebody who looks and sounds suspiciously like Jim Carrey and Ace Ventura Pet Detective, but is actually voiced by Wilma Valderrama. Can this little dog keep out of the reaches of the Pet Detective, reunite with the loving but poor aspiring singer-songwriter Lucy Hale, and keep out of the evil clutches of Marissa jarrett Winokur and Joel McHale? It's really doesn't take a genius to look at what's going to happen at every stretch of this film. On one level, this is a very generic, very unoriginal, very by-the-numbers
0: story. I guessed pretty much exactly what this film would be as soon as I saw the basic setup. Arrogant...
1: Annoying nephew and niece who just wants to sell everything they can and get some money off their dotty old dead aunt. The aspiring singer songwriter, the spunky young girl trying to make it on her own, who reluctantly takes in these dogs voiced by Big Sean and Pamela Adlon, despite the fact her dingy basement apartment doesn't allow pets. But of course, she's going to sing this giant big song at the end which is going to be heard by Jason Mraz, voiced by Jason Mraz. So that's convenient, isn't it? And of course, Lucy McHale is eventually going to get the money as well, and what she decides to do with it makes absolutely no sense, has not been set up in the slightest in the course of the film. It's one of many, many stupid, bizarre decisions which are made in this film. The one voice celebrity cameo which is in this film, which is just makes me roll my eyes and give up on this film, essentially, is that eventually there's a big Doberman dog in the cast who is voiced by Snoop Dogg. And guess who performs the track, the rather lousy track, it has to be said, over the end credits? I mean, I can't believe that a guy who essentially got away with murder back in the day is nowadays you know, the cuddly voice and face of relaxation of cannabis laws. He appears on morning breakfast shows in America. He's a fully integrated member of society, and yet he was so dangerous back in the day. I mean, what happened, man? But anyway, yeah, so Snoop Dogg's in this for no reason and completely takes over the last third of the film, which is totally unnecessary. Totally bizarre decisions. I mean, the
0: nemesis of this little dog when he gets on the streets is a bunch of squirrels. And
1: Little Trouble, voiced by Big Sean, manages to destroy their hoard of nuts. You know, not the worst idea ever but there are torrents floods of nuts which are destroyed by this little dog which makes absolutely no sense and when these squirrels decide to get revenge on this dog which has destroyed their winter stores they do it in the most stupid over-the-top way possible they turn into choreographed, finger-clicking gangsters from West Side Story. There is absolutely no reason why these squirrels need to sing and dance. They're the only characters which do so, and they do it consistently. Why? What was the point? How is that relevant at all to anything else which is going on in this film? It's just one of many, many bizarre decisions which is made in this. It is the worst. I mean, there's another one. One of the dogs eventually has one of those collars, those cones put around her neck to stop her licking because she's a very nervous dog. And when you need to hear something far away, just send her up onto a high point because the cone will allow her to pick up sound waves better. Which... Yeah, I guess it's kind of cute, but when you add it on to all the other really, really stupid decisions which have already been made in this film, it just comes across as stupid and dumb and unnecessary. And I think one of the biggest missteps that this film made was making the life of this pampered dog too extravagant, too much at the beginning of the film. I mean, when you have a little dog who wants for absolutely nothing and has César Milan, voiced by César Milan, on call 24-7, when the dog is that privileged, I have such a hard time being sympathetic to this dog. And it's not even like there is any great growth, any great redemption along the way. I don't think very much is learned, quote unquote, by this
0: dog or respect is gained by this dog. It just happens. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many
1: stupid decisions. I mean, the one very, very minor thing I will give this film genuine praise for is the fact that the first dog that Little Trouble meets on the streets is a dog voiced by Pamela Adlon. And she's a pit bull. And the film does take the time to defend pit bulls, saying, you know, they are not vicious attack animals. They are very caring, very loving, very supportive animals. And maybe we shouldn't judge everything by appearances. So, yeah, I do appreciate the fact that they do take the time to stick up for pit bulls. I mean, my last two dogs were Staffordshire Bull terriers, so I have a soft spot for quote-unquote attack dogs. I like the fact it's stuck up for pit balls, but other than that there is nothing really redeemable about this film at all. On one level it's just unoriginal by the numbers family friendly fare but there's enough stupid unnecessary dumb decisions made in this film that I just don't think it's worth it and for me despite being relatively inoffensive
0: in the grand scheme of things I can't help but give Doggone Trouble on Netflix a nay. Changing direction completely. The other Netflix original film I
1: managed to see last week was the Mexican historical drama Dance of the 41. This tells the story of a gigantic scandal which rocked
0: Mexican society in 1901. The police raided a private
1: house in Mexico City in 1901 at which were found 41 men, 19 of whom were in drag and all of them were dancing with each other. This was a huge scandal, it was widely reported in the press. This was Basically, the first time that homosexuality had openly been discussed in the press in Mexican history. But what made this incident even more notorious was the fact that, by rumour and by widespread public opinion, there were actually 42 men who were rounded up in this raid. But one of them got away with it because. Not only was he a congressman, he was also the son-in-law of the sitting president, Porfirio Diaz. And this just made it even more of a big scandal, even though the president's son-in-law, Ignacio de la Torre, was never publicly mentioned in the news reports at the time, it was so widely accepted that he was actually there that it basically tanked his political career. He was well on his way to becoming the governor of the state of Mexico, Mexico City, which would have been the first rung on the ladder to eventually become president himself, and having the backing of his father-in-law, the actual president slash dictator, who'd been in power for something like 20 odd years by this point. He might well have become a very, very important figure in Mexican political history, but his career was basically over by being associated, however tangentially, to this gigantic scandal. And this film is a fictionalised version of this story. I mean, because there's so few actual facts known about this instance, I think it's highly fictionalised, but about as accurate as you can get in the modern day. It is directed by David Pablos, who has a background in kind of cinema verite style films. got a couple in his background. And it's written by Monica Ravia, whose IMDb page is actually kind of full of Netflix TV shows from Mexico. So maybe she had a foot in the door with Netflix because... Apparently Monica Rivia and David Pablos have been wanting to make a film about The Dance of the 41 for quite some time, but even today Mexico is still a rather homophobic country and they had a lot of difficulty getting it off the ground, until Netflix stepped in and made it. So David Pablos directs this film and the lead of Ignacio De La Torre
0: is played by Alfonso Herrera. He's a a pretty big-name actor in Mexico. His
1: wife, the daughter of the president, is played by Mabel Cadena, and Ignacio de la Torre's fictional boyfriend is played by Emiliano Zurita, who is actually the son of the legendary Mexican TV actress Christian Bach. So it's... Managed to get a somewhat respectable cast together for this somewhat controversial film. Which tells the story of Ignacio de la Torre who marries Amada Diaz, the daughter, the illegitimate daughter of the president, in order to promote his political ambitions and then proceeds to leave her alone in this gigantic mansion surrounded by servants while he goes off
0: and fucks man until eventually the whole thing gets exposed and this is very interesting very powerful stuff i mean this is
1: sumptually visually stunning i mean the production design the costume design it's impeccable it brings to life very early 19th century mexico so beautifully not only in the look, but also the feel, the attitudes that these people have. The fact that this young man played by Alfonso Herrera cannot be open about who he is, marries the daughter of the president for political gain, and then has a very difficult time actually being with her. So this wife played by Mabel Cadena obviously becomes very depressed, and, you yeah, know, what have I done wrong? And making little of the fact that, you know, she is, yes, the daughter of the president, but her mother was also an indigenous woman who General Porfirio Diaz met on campaign. So she is acknowledged by the president, but she's still not quite part of polite society, so what is her status, and what kind of power does she have? Ignacio De Torre might have been a gay man, but he was still a man in the patriarchy, and he actually comes across as a really, really unpleasant character. I mean, there's a, a conversation that Alfonso Herrera has with one of the other people in this you know, secret society of the 42, as it is in the film. The guy who's in charge of this society says, what are you doing? Why do you think we have rules? And Alfonso Herrera replies, they're for everybody else.
0: And know yeah, he's that kind of person. He is so arrogant that he doesn't even try to make it work with his wife. I mean, their wedding night is very
1: uncomfortable to see. I mean, it's hugely fuelled by alcohol, very mechanical and also mostly self-stimulated. And later in the film, there does seem to be a, a tiny sliver that we might just have been able to make this work. But this character's life has been so rigidly Compartmentalized, that he just cannot see a way to reconcile the two sides of his personality. The public figure, the guy who's about to run for governor of Mexico City State, the son in law of the president, and this queer figure who likes to sleep with men. He cannot reconcile them and doesn't even try to. And eventually, the wife, Mabel Cadena, does some pretty despicable things herself she's been pushed to them you feel sympathy for her as well even when she says to her husband let me cure you of your sin once she actually finds out about it i mean that's her attitude yes she is a sympathetic character but she's also a religious zealot which is completely in keeping with the society of mexico in 1901 so seeing how this society functions seeing how these people are not being allowed to live their true lives, their true selves, is kind of depressing and kind of horrifying. Particularly when, for the most part, the relationship between the two men at the centre of it is rather
0: sweet and rather believable. The relationship between Alfonso Herrera and Emiliano Zarita is quite loving and quite interesting, quite intimate. It seems to me that
1: what Emiliano Zarita offers to Alfonso Herrera, quite possibly for the first time, is a level of tenderness, a level of intimacy, which has been completely absent from Alfonso Herrera's interactions with men up until that point. For him, it's all about dominance, and now, suddenly, it's tenderness. And how do you deal with that? this new attitude, this new approach to romance, to even love, is something so alien, so new, that he doesn't really know how to deal with that either. And, yeah, it's, it's actually quite beautiful. But, again, because of the society in which these people are living and also because of the very problematic personality of Alfonso Herrera,
0: it doesn't end particularly well, but I do think it's very interesting. I mean, I, I
1: find it notable uh, and somewhat interesting that there is one scene of a gigantic gay orgy, dozens and dozens of naked men writhing together in one particular scene. So yeah, I I think there's uh, a lot of ogling of lithe naked men, even though. I don't think that director David Pablos is gay. I have tried to do a little bit of research and to the best of my knowledge, none of the main actors or directors in this film are actually gay. I mean, Alfonso Herrera, the lead, is definitely not gay. He's married to a woman with two kids and all his romantic attachments throughout his history have been with women. So he seems to be completely straight. Emiliano Zarita is relatively young and doesn't have a lot of stuff on his filmography, but he is somewhat famous because his mother, Christian Bach, is a very big deal in Mexico. But as far as I can tell, he isn't gay either, and I don't think that David Pablos is either. So I think these were straight men who managed to make what, in my eyes as a cisgendered straight man, looks quite homoerotic and it does have a bit of the queer gaze to it so yeah i think some straight men managed to make a pretty decent queer film which i do actually recommend i think this is a fascinating historical document a fascinating examination of a real life incident which to this day has ramifications in mexico 41 is still a euphemism for homosexuality in mexico I mean, there's no 41st Regiments of the Mexican Army. Some buildings don't have 41st floors. It's that ingrained in Mexican society. So to explore it through modern and somewhat more liberal eyes is rather interesting. I mean, the fact that eventually this did get made, thanks to Netflix, and it did play at the Morelia Film Festival in Mexico, and did get a cinematic release in Mexico, maybe the machismo of the Mexican man, Mexican society, is somewhat coming down a little bit. So we're going to have to see how that goes. But yeah, I think this is a very interesting, very informative, beautifully filmed, beautiful-looking film, But I do recommend, so for me, Dance of the 41 on Netflix is a yay.
0: Coming Attractions Similarly to
1: this week, one of next week's cinematic releases I have already seen at the Film Bath Festival. This coming week, the Oscar-winning international feature film Another Round from Denmark is released cinematically and I have already reviewed it in my Film Bath Festival special, which is episode 92. Unlike this week, I don't think I will be clipping out that particular review to replay in the next standard episode, because honestly, despite it winning the Oscar, I'm not the hugest fan of Another Round. And you can go back and hear all about it in my Film Bath Festival special, but it's... I guess my duty to inform you that Another Round is out at the cinema this week. The biggest new release at the cinemas this week is the film Freaky, which has been on the shelf for a very, very long time. I've been seeing trailers for this for close to two years now, and it sounds like a really, really fascinating premise. It's done by the same guy who did the Happy Death Day movies and has a very cool subversion of the slasher movie genre as Happy Death Day did as well. In this case, a serial killer played by Vince Vaughn is going around killing co-eds at a university. And somehow his consciousness gets body-swapped with his latest potential victim. Catherine Newton. So now, Catherine Newton has to get back into her own body before the serial killer who is wearing her body goes around killing all her friends. And that sounds really, really cool. So I do want to check out Freaky. And at the more art house and prestige end of the spectrum, the other cinematic film I want to watch this week is one that. I tried to see through extra legal means earlier in the year because it was listed on the gold derby lists of Oscar potential, but I never actually found it. Even in America, it was released too late in the year for it to be pirated before the Oscar ceremony. So that was one I mildly regretted not being able to see before my Oscar deliberations because there was a somewhat reasonable chance that. Michelle Pfeiffer would get a Best Actress nomination for it. But regardless, it is out and available now. And it's called French Exit, which is based on a novel by the same guy who did The Sisters Brothers and tells the story of a rich widow, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, who lives a lavish life in New York until the money runs out. So she runs away to France tries to keep up appearances but she's actually penniless where she lives in a tiny little Parisian apartment with her nephew played by Lucas Hedges. So that sounds like it might be rather interesting and I do want to check that out at the cinemas as well. In a bit of a grey area as far as cinematic releases goes, I have seen listed on next week's cinematic releases the film from Cote d'Ivoire, Night of the Kings. But I have not found any evidence at all that it's actually going to be in cinemas next week. So I don't know about that one. It's listed, but I do not have any evidence at all that it's actually coming out. But if I do find actual evidence that Night of the Kings from Cote d'Ivoire is coming out, then I will be releasing the review I already have recorded when I saw it through extra legal means earlier in the year because it was one of the 10 film long list for international feature
0: Oscars this year. It's a pretty decent film, but it does have one or two issues. So yeah, if
1: I... Confirm that Knight of the Kings is out at the cinemas next week. I will be releasing the review I already have of that. As a young Ivorian man gets sent to a gigantic jail in the jungle and is instantly proclaimed the roman, the storyteller. And as he starts telling this story, this magical, mystical story about a famous gangster, little does he realise that when he stops telling his story, he will be killed. So then it turns into a Scheherazade kind of thing, you know, extending the story, and if he can keep the story going all night, maybe he can survive. So yeah, that's uh, a bit of magic realism from sub-Saharan Africa, and possibly that's going to be out cinematically next week, and if it is, I will release the review I already have of it. There was another random sale on the Google Play Store recently, so I downloaded a load of streaming films that I was intrigued to get to. So I have already got on my tablet the Native American girl coming of age in Once Upon a River, Anthony Hopkins acting in his wife's latest film, Elise, and a quirky teenager talks to a talking pigeon in Dr. Bird's Advice for Sad Poets. Not downloaded yet, but I am very curious to get to it, is the anarchic teen romance road movie, Dinner in America. And I've also come across an Australian film, which has been released onto streaming platforms,
0: which does look rather interesting. A Grief Stricken Woman. Goes back to her mother's funeral, I believe. And when she
1: goes through the greenhouse, which is attached to her childhood home, she goes back in time and can revisit her lesbian parents and her unconventional
0: siblings and wants to go back and back and back and just stay in the past and
1: try and fix and relive all the things that went wrong when she was younger so basically losing herself in nostalgia and the dangers of nostalgia i think but that does look kind of interesting so at some point i do want to check out the australian film the greenhouse Already released onto Sky Cinema this week is a film called Kindred. Now, I initially glossed over this one because I thought it was one of those films that had just got a stream release earlier in the year, and I wasn't all that bothered by it. But when I realised it was a Sky original, I thought, oh, okay, that puts it in a slightly different category. And when I can just watch it on my skybox from first principles, I may as well. And it does look somewhat interesting, even though the reviews have been mixed, to say the least. A young black woman, a young pregnant black woman, played by Tamara Lawrence, ends up at the crumbling country house of her dead boyfriends, Mother played by Fiona Shaw. And the more time she is quite unquote recuperating in this house, the more she has suspicions that Fiona Shaw and her dead boyfriend's stepbrother have nefarious purposes for her and her unborn baby. So yeah, lots of psychological horror, a bit get out, a bit Rosemary's Baby, maybe. But yeah, that does look mildly interesting, and since I can just watch it on my Skybox, I think I will
0: be checking out Kindred. We still have the streaming projects from
1: isolated sources. On Mubi.com, we still have the American indie comedy Shiva Baby, which I have already pirated and am planning to watch. And through Amazon Prime Video, which I still do not subscribe to, there's the emotional weepy based
0: on a true story, Our Friend, which I'm probably going to get to at some point. On Netflix, we have the Indian film about a girl's self-empowerment,
1: Skater Girl, the documentary Hating Peter Tatchell,
0: the arthouse feminist horror historical film, Tragic Jungle from Mexico.
1: The Indonesian film about finding your family, Ali and Ratu Ratu Queens. Eliza Schlesinger's autobiographical comedy, Good on Paper. The Spanish true crime documentary, Murder by the Coast and the Italian film based on an American novel, Security. That's still on the list, and added to the Netflix lists this week, we have what looks like a very bizarre animated film, America colon The Motion Picture, which has apparently been done by one of the guys behind Archer. Now, Archer is not an animated series I've ever watched. I am aware of it. I've seen it here and there. It never really appealed to me, but one of the guys behind the cartoon series Archer has made this motion picture which recasts famous figures from American history as kind of the Avengers. George Washington has a chainsaw for a hand and is voiced by Channing Tatum. Thomas Edison can fly and is voiced by Olivia Munn. Samuel Adams is a beer drinking bro and is voiced by Jason Mantzoukas. It's that kind of thing. I'm very, very curious about this, so I think I will be checking out America the Motion Picture, the adult
0: animation from, I think, one of the guys behind Archer. And the other. Netflix film that you can specifically call a film that I will be checking out this
1: week is a Polish film called Prime Time which looks really really fascinating. It's New Year's Eve 1999 and an armed young man played by Bartosz Bielena from Corpus Christi goes into a TV studio takes everybody hostage and demands that his message be broadcast for the new millennium. So yeah, it looks like an interesting psychological thriller there from Poland, and that does intrigue me. So primetime is on the list. And then we come to what is probably the most highly publicised
0: release on Netflix this coming week. But... I'm a tiny bit conflicted about.
1: With so much media being released and streamed at home, even before the pandemic, the lines blurring between what is a quote unquote movie, a quote unquote TV movie, and a quote unquote TV series, it has been blurred consistently over the last decade. And there's a project released this coming weekend on Netflix which really, really blurs the lines. R.L. Stein is best known as the writer of the Goosebumps series, introducing preteens to tropes of horror, ideas of horror, a little bit of a scary jolt for younger audiences. I must admit, I was never into the Goosebumps series. I was a little bit too old for the Goosebumps when they were at the height of their popularity. But I do support anything which gets young people reading, and young people interested in horror. That can only be a good thing. And while R.L. Stein is best known for the Goosebumps series, which is aimed at a preteen audience. He also wrote a series of books called Fear Street, which was aimed at a slightly older teen audience. And three of these Fear Street novels have been adapted by Netflix. They're set in the same community, but in three different time periods. And these three Fear Street films, which are full length, Movies. I mean, the first one is listed at one hour, 45 minutes, but they're going to be released in three consecutive Fridays by Netflix. The first one is set in 1994, the second one in 1978, and the third one in 1666, where it's going back and seeing the root of the curse which has affected this small little town of Shadyside. So yeah, three movies under the Fair Street banner released on three consecutive Fridays. Now, is that a series of films, or is that a miniseries or a TV series? The lines, as far as I'm concerned, are very, very blurred. So yeah. Whether or not it qualifies as a quote-unquote movie, I think I will be checking out this trilogy of films, Fear Street. And the first one, Fear Street Part 1, 1994, is released this coming Friday, and I will be checking it out at some point. So that ends up on the list. And yeah, that is the lengthy list of things which are currently near the top of my list so got a lot of stuff to fit in in between games in the euro 2020 championships a year late i'm recording this the day after england's glorious defeat of germany in the last 16 so yeah facing ukraine in the quarterfinals and then in the semi-finals the winner of denmark versus switzerland we couldn't have asked for a better run into the final. We really, really might do it this year, and I'm getting far too excited about this. But anyway, got lots of stuff to watch in between football games, and some or all of that will be in the next Standard episode. And I am also going to have to start working on my April foreplay, which I've already started doing a little bit of work for, but you know, other things keep getting in the way so my April foreplay will be coming somewhat soon as well. So lots of stuff coming in the future, but for right now, this has been Yane Aonbair presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Connie Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod.
0: And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema both obvious and obscure.